No wonder that you see hate violence of this nature when, for decades, the LGBT community has been painted with a number of stereotypes that if you truly believed them, of course you would act. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contributors tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of Left podcast with clips today from Dan Savage, Counterspin, Talk Poverty Radio, The Humorless Queers, Familia, TQLM, The Bradcast with Brad Friedman, and Democracy Now! This wasn't the first attack on a gay bar. Some bigoted monster planted a nail bomb in a pub in London in the 90s. A madman tried to set fire to a gay bar in Seattle on New Year's Eve 2014. A madman, another arsonist, set fire to a gay bar in New Orleans in the 70s. And 30 people died. There have been other attacks. There will be attacks in the future. Because there is... And it seems there always will be hate targeting the lesbian, gay, bi, and trans community. And we need to confront that hate. There's a couple of things we need to confront. Guns, again, guns, access to guns. The killer in Orlando used the same weapon that the killer used in that grade school in Sandy Hook and that the killers used in that office park in San Bernardino, an assault weapon. We need to bring back, we used to have a ban on assault weapons. We need to bring back the ban on assault weapons. We need to make it harder for people to get their hands on weapons designed to mow down as many human beings as possible in the shortest amount of time possible with the least amount of effort possible. And we need to confront and we need to hold people accountable for the toxic, murderous homophobia and transphobia that is continuously pumped into our culture. And the main source, the wellspring of that toxic homophobia and transphobia is religion. Not all religions, not all faith leaders. I can hear the nults running to their keyboards. We're not all like that. We know you're not all like that. But you know what? Enough of you, people of faith, are like that to keep this toxic homophobia and transphobia in play, to keep it deadly, to keep it lethal. And so we need to confront that. We need to argue with people about their theology, which is something I used to say maybe we should try to avoid. Okay, we're going to go to hell. That's fine. You can think that. Let us live our lives and God can sort it out. And if you're right, you win. But the price of not confronting people about their theology is obviously too great. The Orlando sheriff on CNN shortly after the shooting, shootings, murders, said, we call on members of the clergy to pray for us, to pray for this community, to pray for healing. We, lesbian, gay, bi, and trans people everywhere, we call on members of the clergy, imams, priests, rabbis, pastors, to examine your own hands for evidence of blood. Because this kind of murderous homophobia, it doesn't come from nowhere. The killer's father was on television saying that his son was angered 
and may have been motivated to commit these crimes, this crime, this series of crimes, these 50 murders. After seeing two men kiss in Miami in front of his three-year-old son. Because how do you explain to a three-year-old two men kissing? I guarantee you that that three-year-old had no problem with two men kissing. I guarantee it was not an issue for that three-year-old. Because that three-year-old had not yet lived on this earth long enough to be poisoned by homophobia, which is pushed by who? By what? And to what end? And when will it end? And how many have to die before it ends? And how many atrocities must there be? How many attacks on gay, lesbian, bi, and trans people will there be before we, and by we I don't just mean queer people, I mean all good and decent people, stand up to the homophobes and the bigots and no longer allow them to hide behind their pulpits, their quote-unquote sincerely held religious beliefs, their Leviticus quotes, their Quranic quotes, their paper-thin, literally paper-thin justifications for hatred and bigotry. A lot of screaming and yelling on Twitter that liberals want to talk about guns, conservatives want to talk about Islamic fundamentalist terrorists. We can talk about both things. We can talk about religious bigotry and we can talk about our poisonous, toxic gun culture. And religious bigotry against LGBT people isn't unique to Islam. Ted Cruz, Bobby Jindal, and Mike Huckabee all spoke at a faith event and were brought on stage by the host of that event, a Christian pastor, after, immediately after, he called for the extermination, for the deaths of gay people, of all gay Americans. So this isn't unique to Islam, but you see evidence of it everywhere, justifications for it everywhere. You see a justification for it when the Pope, cool Pope Francis, gave a speech, made remarks about the shooting in Orlando and couldn't bring himself to acknowledge who the victims of that shooting were. We have refuges now. Gay bars, historically, were always refuges for queer people. And we have refuge now in places that 40 years ago, 35 years ago when I was coming out, we never expected that we would ever have. We can find a refuge, many of us, in our families of origin, in our workplaces, with our straight colleagues, in our communities. Gay bars aren't the only place we can find refuge. But gay bars and nightclubs like Pulse, like The Cuff in Seattle, like Roscoe's and Sidetracks in Chicago, like The Eagle and G in New York, like Pulse in Orlando, still places of refuge and clearly still necessary and needed places of refuge. Unfortunately, not impenetrable places, not completely safe places, because the doors are open. The doors at Pulse, like the doors at Rebar, where I met Terry, open to all. It's June. This attack came in June. June is Gay Pride Month. June is the month the communities all across the United States host gay pride parades, celebrate LGBT life. And Pride, of course, commemorates an attack on a gay bar on the Stonewall Inn 
in New York City in 1969 that sparked the gay revolution, the modern LGBT civil rights movement. But that attack on that gay bar, that attack on Stonewall, that lit a fuse, that changed the world. And here we are, June, and an attack on a gay bar. And one of the key differences in these attacks, if you're looking for the silver lining, was the attack on Stonewall, on the Stonewall Inn in the village in New York City in 1969. It was an attack by the authorities. The cops burst into that bar to arrest the patrons who fought back. And this weekend, in Orlando at Pulse, a gay bar under attack, and this time the cops, they burst in not to arrest the patrons, but to attempt to save them. We will always live in a world with bigots. The measure of a society is not, is it free of homophobia, transphobia, anti-Semitism, racism, sexism? The test is, how does that society respond when racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, anti-Semitism, when those things manifest themselves, how does that society respond? Deadly, deadly form of homophobia manifested itself in Orlando this weekend. And you can see a measure of progress, as painful as it is at this moment, to even acknowledge progress in the response. The response of good people, the response of the President of the United States, the response of the authorities. If any good is going to come of this, in the same way that something good and transformative came of the Stonewall riots, the attack on Stonewall, let it be this attack also serving as a catalyst. Stonewall-inspired, lesbian, gay, bi, and trans people all over the country and all over the world to come out, to fight, to demand change, to demand the respect and love of their families and their communities and their nations. Let us bury the dead. Let us mourn and then let us come out of this attack making demands. A demand for an end to gun violence, a demand for sensible and sane gun control, and a demand for an end to homophobia and to transphobia, and a demand for accountability for those who promote it, whether they're promoting it in a church or a mosque so make a plan. or a legislature. It has to end, and it has to end now. Stonewall ended the closet. Let Pulse end the tolerance for bigotry. Another lonely soul and 
While some right-wing media will never let go, corporate media in general are backing away from their radical Islam narrative as more details emerge about the man who killed 49 people and injured dozens more in Orlando. Journalist and historian Owen Higgins noted for FAIR.org that media initially referred to a shooting when information was scant. They didn't start referring to it as an act of terrorism when the FBI announced that they were treating it that way, but only after the killer's ethnicity was revealed. He was U.S. born with parents from Afghanistan. Or, as USA Today tweeted, Shooter was U.S. citizen, but some of his family is not. Law enforcement shaped the storyline, telling reporters that in his 911 call, the killer pledged loyalty to ISIS. Though we then came to learn that he said a number of other things, too, including that he supported al-Qaeda and Hezbollah, who of course oppose one another and ISIS. In the effort to cram the atrocity into the preferred frame, some turned history on its head. As Sam Husseini noted on FAIR.org, the June 12th NPR featured the counterterrorism correspondent Dina Temple-Raston, who drew a parallel with Spain, claiming that when the 2004 Madrid train attacks happened just before the Spanish election, quote, the more conservative candidate ended up winning, close quote. She had speculated that ISIS might attack the U.S. in the run-up to elections, possibly in order to help elect Trump, since they would be able to perhaps get more recruits because of the way he talks about Muslims. It's happened in the past, Temple Raston claimed, leading to her upside-down rendering of Spanish history. In fact, the incumbent government, led by the Conservative People's Party, had brought Spain into the Iraq War a year before over public opposition and feared that if the attack were shown to be Mideast-related, voters would be furious. They had the UN Security Council pass a resolution that same day condemning the bomb attacks in Madrid, Spain, perpetrated by the terrorist group ETA. Three days later, the day of the election, al-Qaeda claimed responsibility. Before the bombing, the People's Party generally led in the polls by four or five percentage points. But the Socialist Party ended up winning the election by five points on a platform including calling for removing Spanish troops from Iraq, which they did. Husseini found no record of any Mideast-related attacks since that time. Maybe there's something to be learned there. But instead, NPR changed the facts to fit a different story. Told of the error, NPR ran an online-only correction. It turns out Temple Raston got the year of the bombing wrong as well. But that did little to explain the significance of the mistake. And that's on top of the fact that corporate media broke every rule social scientists suggest about how to cover mass shootings without encouraging copycats. No one says ignore these events. Just don't, say sociologists like Zainab Tufeci, go into elaborate detail about precisely which guns were used or how much robocop gear was employed. We are not served by immediately hearing the killer's words or manifestos or learning what music he liked or what video games he played. Headlines like one in the New York Times declaring how cool and calm the killer was are also unhelpful if discouraging others from choosing this way to make the news is part of what media are about. There seems to be 
um, attention about what to label us. I think、mm. that that we're very comfortable saying that this was a hate crime, but it seems like people on the right are trying to make this more of a, a terrorist attack. Which, even if it's a terrorist attack, it was、uh, targeted on、um, LGBT people. What does the the labeling of this mean for for the fight for LGBT equality for、um, Our work against, you know, the the easy access we have to guns. What is exact? Can you help us understand this more? Yeah, that's a good question. This is actually a question that we、um, we talked about a year ago、uh, after the Charleston shooting,、um, and and I think you know there and there was.、Um, There was a debate, and there was some consternation about whether or not the FBI director was going to call it an act of domestic terrorism,、um, in addition to calling it a hate crime.、Um, and I think,、um, you know, for from my perspective,、um, regardless of whether, you know, the targeting of the LGBT community here and the targeting of the African American community in Charleston,、um, by virtue of the targeting. That is an act of terrorism because terrorism is designed to invoke fear and to send a particular message to a particular group. And so, with that definition, these instances are both hate crimes and they are acts of domestic terrorism. And I think that there is, it is, you know, and and I'd be curious to see if you agree with me on this, Laura.、Um, I think that there is value in. Being willing to use the term domestic terrorism to describe these kinds of acts, because I think that、um, while we have some robust federal laws with respect to hate crimes, and while we have、um, some some strong hate crimes laws in some states around the country,、um, you know. Our hate crimes laws are really underutilized,、um, and they are underprosecuted. And and、um, you know we've we've passed them,、um, and we passed you know the Matthew Shepard and、um, James Arbour Act, and 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 that was a big victory in passing them.、Um, but if you don't use them, then what did, what did we win? And I think I think talking about、um, these kinds of of Acts of violence that have this really specific hate and bias motivation, and that are designed to send a message.、Um, you, also, framing them as as domestic terrorism, I think, is really important because it it elevates the、uh, I don't want to say the importance, but it kind of elevates the the、um, the conversation about the the urgency of taking these seriously.、Um, and, and the other the other thing, I mean, you know, I think the the way that the right talks about this is, you know, quote unquote Islamic terrorism, is, Islamic extremism. I mean, I think that you know that is、um, a complete pivot away from. What we actually need to be talking about when we're talking about this about this incident, and this is something, frankly, that、um, the gun lobby and the NRA does all the time when we try to talk about gun violence. Is I want to talk about gun violence, and they say, no, 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 we have to talk about mental health. Really, the problem is mental health, and they find these points to pivot away. Right now, they're pivoting away and focusing on, you know, national security and terrorism. And so,、uh, that's the other tension with all of this in terms of like the terminology that we use.、Um, but I'm curious if what you think about kind of the, using the term terrorism, yeah, domestic terrorism. I'm glad you made the distinction at the end there because I think this is a really complicated question. Total double-edged sword, right? Like I can entirely see the value in trying to break down the idea that terrorism is something that only happens in the Middle East,、mm-hmm. or you know, during you know the like anywhere else on Earth but here in America. And I think we sort of shy away from doing that. And I think it's 
an important thing to do, as you said, to elevate and call something what it is. Mm-hmm. Words matter. Um, and then on the flip side of that, the danger entirely is of falling into these traps of profiling and ascribing terrorism only in the instances where the perpetrator appears to be a person of color and those kinds of things. So I think we're just in this dangerous moment where that can easily happen. And so I'm glad that you sort of brought up the distinction and said, we got to hold these both at once. Suspect in Los Angeles, right? Right. That was was, uh, found with military grade weapons and camouflage who was prevented from attacking the pride parade there, but he was clearly prepared to love an attack on LGBT people, but it, the headlines didn't say suspected terrorists. Right, right, right. Well, and that's why it was really important after the Charleston shooting to call that man a terrorist. And that's why it's really important when we talk about um, the people who are involved in the Malheur standoff and the Bundy Ranch standoff. Those people are domestic terrorists. And so we, you're, I, I 100% agree, is that we have to, we almost have to kind of take it back a little bit and, and you know, use that word every time it it is appropriate every time you have somebody who is engaging in terroristic acts designed to strike fear among a targeted community you know we need to call that out as what it is As a queer person, I'm truly proud to see so many queer people and organizations and communities all across the country and the world affirmatively, preemptively denouncing uh, Islamophobia as a response to this attack. You know, my a colleague of mine at the ACLU of, of Massachusetts p- posted a blog on our website, aclum.org. Um, today, actually, in it's a really personal ref- reflection on what happened in Orlando like you, Alexis, he was out at a gay club. Um, it was Pride and weekend. Uh, it was Pride weekend in Boston the, at the same time, you know, when it was in DC and Orlando. And um, he wrote something that I thought was really poignant, and I guess explains why I think so many queer people responded to this in what I would say is the right way, with empathy instead of with you know rage uh, targeting a huge group of people. He said that basically after we have been the targets of such um, ignorant hatred and bigotry for so long, many of us for our entire lives, uh, he wrote, I think many queer people can spot the demonization of others, and I think we have a role to play in stopping it. And that that to me is really, I think that really hits the nail on the head that queer people, we can see when a group of, of people is is attacked and somebody tries to bring people down um, simply because they are a member of a very large, diverse uh, group of people. And, and I don't think queers are buying into it. I think we can see and call the bullshit out on that. And I just want to say that I'm really impressed and, and happy about that. Yeah, and I, I am too. And I went to a vigil earlier this week in D.C. in DuPont Circle that was organized by the Muslim American Women's Policy Forum. Um, and it was 
just a very moving, very sad, but very powerful vigil. Um, they offered prayers, not just in English and Spanish, but also Hindi and Arabic. Um, and there was just an overarching theme of, you know, anti-LGBT bigotry is the same as anti-Muslim, you know, Islamophobia, that, you know, people talked about how they were really scared about the rhetoric coming out after the tragedy was going to be used to target them and just speaking out and reminding folks that like LGBT people are not just white people. Um, and that's sort of like people kind of incredulously talking about seeing some of the immediate knee-jerk political reactions from the right wing who traditionally have on one end either abandoned the gay community and on the other end like actively work to demonize us and attack us and take away our rights and, and all of a sudden like draping themselves in the rainbow flag. Um, but there was just a, a universal call in this vigil to reject not just homophobia but transphobia, Islamophobia and anti-Muslim bigotry and I just felt so proud of my community to be standing shoulder to shoulder with everyone and so many different people you know speaking out because they'd sort of had an open mic style thing at the end um you know, and there was everything from a, a queer man from Palestine talking to someone who had just moved here from Orlando. And it was just really, um, it, of course, made me very, very sad, but also very proud to see the response. Yeah, definitely. It's a long way to happiness, a long way to go. But I'm gonna get there, boy, the only way I know. Cause it's a long way to happiness, a long way to go. But I'm gonna get there, boy, the only way I know. in Orlando is not new because we people of color have a history in the U.S. of never mattering. We have a history of enslavement. We have a history of exploitation. We have a history of criminalization. We have a history of violence and that is what happened today. This attack was years in the making based off of hundreds and hundreds of years of oppression and violence targeted towards queer and trans people of color. The media will use labels like terrorism and, and other things to get us away from understanding how our culture and institutions like the media, like education, like prisons have actually been complicit in this attack and are complicit in the ways that our bodies are put at risk every single day, both inside of our homes and out in public space, such and as the streets. We as queer and trans Latinx people need to see what happened in Orlando as a reminder that our human dignity, our lives are connected to the liberation of black people, of Muslim people, of women, of trans people. And so we cannot move forward without working with these communities to end white supremacy, patriarchy. And then when we say Latinx, we mean, and it includes Asian folks, black people, Muslims, um, Native Americans. And so for us, we're, we're one culture, but with a very diverse experience. And so we need to put an end to this because there's no one specific group that is being blamed. It is the system that has created this violence since the colonization started over 500 years ago.
In the wake of the horrific attack at Pulse in Orlando, it was all too clear what story some corporate media wanted to tell. Frank Bruni in the New York Times told readers, yes, it was LGBTQ people who were killed and injured, but the attack was really on freedom itself because we in America integrate and celebrate diverse points of view. A Guardian journalist walked off the set of a Sky TV interview in which the hosts insisted the Orlando attack was on human beings enjoying themselves and questioned why he, a gay man, would want to take ownership of the crime. Well, media are backing off that clash of civilization storyline a little bit, but their eagerness to cram the event into a xenophobic anti-Islam narrative they're comfortable with was telling. There's a value to expanding our definition of us so that we empathize whenever anyone is harmed. But then there's also vaguing things out so much that you distort and misunderstand what's happening and what's at stake. What if instead of lecturing us, media just listened to the people who were impacted? Well, joining us to discuss some of the many things that the Orlando killings give us to think about is Jorge Gutierrez, founder and national coordinator of Familia, the trans-queer liberation movement. Welcome to Counterspin, Jorge Gutierrez. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, many things, of course, are involved here. There's access to absurdly lethal weapons and access to mental health care. There are a number of valid conversations that can grow from this, but it seems important to keep focus on who was targeted and who was killed. But the queer Latinx community is not one that big media have any deep knowledge of for sure. The video that Familia released and that's been widely shared spoke into that void. Tell us about why you made that video and what was the message of it? Waking up on Sunday morning to such horrible news, And knowing, right, that this happened at a gay club, it happened on a Latino night where there was, you know, Latino and and Black folks and trans folks were there. But we didn't see that being, you know, visible in what the media was sharing all through Sunday. And so we felt that there was a need from us to center our lives and our community and and uplift our our community in in all of this. And so for us, it was was a response directly to the erasure from mainstream media of the LGBTQ Latino community and also a response from us, like you said, about what really happened, right? And so we know that that this that this conversation is so complex and that there's so many layers to it. But for us, it was important to center the LGBTQ Latino community in all of this. In some ways, we were creating our own narrative, our own story, our own media, because we felt that the mainstream media was ignoring the fact that and now we know, right, that more than half are Puerto, were Puerto Rican victims and then also Mexican victims and Salvadoran victims. And so we know that, you know, over 80 percent of the victims were Latino. And so for us, that was how we wanted to center the conversation. Well, yes, we've heard people like Representative Pete Sessions stumble his way through you know, it was a young person's club, and some people were gay, but they were mainly Latino, as though some people just can't see things together, you know, and it's this thing of of intersectionality, you know, the term introduced by critical race theorist Kim Crenshaw, not to mean being two things at once, which we all are, but to mean, you know, the way that some people's particular experience can be erased or made invisible 
by the way that we consider things along just one vector at a time. People were gratified, for example, to see CNN's Anderson Cooper when he was talking to the Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi, who opposed same-sex marriage. And he was saying, you know, the language that you used in that fight, that gays and lesbians do social harm, you know, that language has repercussions. It isn't that what happened on June 12th is in another order of horror, but there is an effort, isn't there, to connect it to the violence against LGBTQ people of color every day. Right, right. And I think that that's also part of the, of the video, right, that this violence is not new, especially to LGBT people of color in our, in our families and our communities, right, that we're in constant violence, um, you know, on, on the streets, at work, uh, wherever we feel like we're safe. And so for us, it's important to be able to connect it, you know, to the broader violence, systems of violence that are happening in this country, whether we're talking about police brutality and violence, whether we're talking about deep homophobia and transphobia in this country, that we know this reality is happening and we're experiencing high volumes of, of violence, you know, every day in our lives in this country. And so it's critical that we're able to connect all of these things, you know, together when we talk about what happened in Orlando, right? That it wasn't a coincidence that it was a gay club. It wasn't, it's not a coincidence that, that it was mostly Latino folks and victims, right? And so for us, I think that's really important to, to know because I think it matters, right? We're talking here about violence towards people of color. We're talking about racism. We're talking about transphobia. We're talking about homophobia. And so these are all the systems that are creating constant violence in our communities every day. And so, so I think to not mention that, I think is an insult to, to our communities because we know too well this kind of reality. And, and unfortunately, this will continue, right? And so we need to figure out ways to really have those the real honest conversations in order to be able to find true solutions that will benefit LGBT people of color in our communities moving forward. Well, one of the things that's been so heartening has been to see LGBTQ people get out in front of the Islamophobic storyline. People really don't seem to be falling for that divide and conquer thing. That call for unity is so important at this moment and and to say we are not going to blame just one individual. We're not going to blame one family, one community, that this is so much more than, than that, right? And so we stand in solidarity with our LGBTQ Muslim brothers and sisters and their families, right? Because we know that they, this is also going to impact them in other ways. And so we don't, we want to stay away from that and really to, to name it and say that, you know, we do not want mainstream media and the government to use and exploit our pain to grow their Islamophobic agenda, because that is not what this is about, right? This is about, you know, the deep violence that in many ways this country is so obsessed with. And then we continue to see these kinds of massacres happen in our communities, and yet n nothing is being done to stop that from happening. And so for us, it's, this is a call for unity. We stand, we know, with our Muslim communities. And, and I think that, you know, to center the conversation around that, I think it's so problematic and, and so wrong. I think, you know, that there's this cause for unity, a cause for people to come and communities to come together and continue to organize to be able to, you know, not have these situations repeat again in this country or anywhere in the world. Folks can see the video at familiatqlm.org. Let me just ask you, Jorge, why a video? You know, we've seen lots of writing. What was it about the kind of multimedia or that approach to it? Did you think that would kind of make it more graspable for folks? Yeah, I think it's all of that. And I think it's also important for people, you know, 
to see the connection of, you know, when you see the, the, you know, the faces of the victims on social media and you see us that, you know, like that we're each other, like it, you know, that could have been us. It could have been us, you know, it could have been any gay Latino nightclub, you know, in, 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 in LA, in, in Chicago, in New York, and they're the places that we wanted people to really see and hear directly from our community and center those voices on our community, right? For us to be able to speak to the pain, to the anger, to speak to these, all these other issues that are happening. So far as it was really important to people to convey all of that through, through a video where people could directly see our community. So we thought that that was really, really important. Well, thank you very much for that. We've been speaking with Jorge Gutierrez of Familia, the transqueer liberation movement. As I've said, you can find them online at familiatqlm.org. Jorge Gutierrez, thank you so much for joining us today on Counterspin. I want to go back to you, Laura Durso. Um, it, it's uh, it, Chelsea noted that um, this horrific um, set of events happened during Pride, um, which in some ways makes it even more painful. Um, it, it also comes on the heels of a, a pretty amazing couple of years when it comes to progress towards equality, towards tolerance, um, on the heels of marriage equality from the Supreme Court. But it also comes on the heels of um, an array of attacks on LGBT individuals by policymakers um, uh, and by uh, individuals who want to be policymakers who are running for office. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about um, uh, uh, how LGBT individuals are um, and have sort of come to be targets of hate crimes, um, not just of discrimination, which is a whole other separate conversation that, that we can and should have, um, and I've had you on the show to talk about before, but specifically of hate crimes. Yeah, great question. Um, I would say... Only recently have we had pretty hard data to talk about hate crimes within the LGBT community, which is, um, you know, we're all grateful for as researchers and policymakers data help us tell those stories. Um, but we can look back at decades and decades of um, discrimination and violence that we would probably call hate crimes today. Um, and so it's I think it's this sort of the, the confluence of a couple of things. So it's sort of no wonder that you see hate violence of this nature when for decades the LGBT community has been painted with a number of stereotypes that if you truly believed them, of course you would act. If you truly thought that a trans woman entering the appropriate bathroom was a threat to public safety, of course you would act. If you thought that we were predators coming for your children in schools, and these are things that were on television and there were PSAs, um, you know, we were mentally ill up until only a few years ago. Officially, um, according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Exactly, Manual. exactly. Yeah. And so 
It's no wonder that people act out in violent ways when everything in our culture suggests that the LGBT community is essentially worthy of violence and needs to be stopped in some way. And so what you're seeing now, I think, is the progression of rights, the increased visibility, is now sort of coming together with this, um, you know, again, just decades-long context of stereotyping the community in particular pernicious ways that... Now we can be seen. Now suddenly we seem like we're getting ahead. Mm -hmm. And if we are those predators and those perverts, then of course there are people who are going to try and think that it's appropriate for them to act in violent ways. And, and I think that's that confluence is perhaps why we are seeing such violence right now, as you said, on the heels of things like marriage equality, probably on the cusp of comprehensive non-discrimination. The Obama administration has now given us these great rules and regulations that protect us in the workplace, in hospitals, in healthcare, um, in schools. And people are reacting very strongly because I think they look at that and say, but that's some weirdo population that's not supposed to be a part of public life. We are supposed to stamp them out. And unfortunately, we see that the lieutenant governor of Texas tweeted out just after we learned about the shooting in Orlando that we had reaped what we sowed, mm. quoting Bible verse. He was not alone in saying those types of things. So I think uh, it is it is exposing the dark underbelly uh, of America right now. so frustrating because like you said clinton's first response was let's bomb syria and it's like what the fuck are you talking about this was an american this was a guy who was born in new york raised here lived here his entire life who again was obsessed with law enforcement had you know weird fantasies about becoming a cop um was a super misogynist beat his wife loved taking steroids and working out at the gym all the time, had some super weird issues with his own sexuality. Um, that has nothing to do with ISIS. ISIS, the CIA and the FBI have now said, had nothing to do with this attack operationally. They didn't know who this guy was until he um, announced to the 911 person wh while he was committing this attack um, that he was doing this on behalf of ISIS. Any crazy person can say that they're doing anything on behalf of ISIS. Um, um, and, you know, for Hillary Clinton, who considers herself the serious candidate in this race, to out of the gate respond to that absolutely tenuous, if non-existent, or non-existent if tenuous, whatever, um, connection to ISIS in this case and say the response is that we need to bomb Syria. I mean, it, that's not a serious response to an actual problem, which is that we kill each other a lot in the United States and we are a violent people. Um, well, you know, and I, Sorry. No, go ahead. 
It just seems to me also that that kind of a response and, and Donald Trump's response and the response of so many just talking about, oh, you know, this is yet another reason why we have to bomb more Muslims um, and cramp, you know, clamp down on Muslim communities, even in the United States in ways that I think are probably illegal. Um, it plays into what ISIS wants, right? Because exactly. ISIS wants nothing more than a culture war between the United States and the Muslim world. And, you know, of course, you know, when there was even a whisper that this guy said, oh, yes, I'm allying with ISIS, ISIS is going to say, yes, yes, he's a part of us because there's no downside for them doing it. That is their goal. Their goal is to make themselves seem bigger than they are, even though all of the evidence and the FBI has made it clear that nobody gave an instruction. This actually wasn't ISIS directing anything. This dude was a complete lone wolf. But all all of these politicians are doing exactly what ISIS wants them to do by trying to make this about Islam. Um, and so exactly. it actually makes us so much less safe as a society. It makes, you know, people who are deployed overseas, it, it makes us less safe in so many different ways. And yet all of our politicians just see this as a way to, I guess, get more votes and because they want to scare people and make them vote for them out of fear. And it's just really horrible. No, exactly. Like if you were a total dipshit, nobody asshole misogynist and you wanted to kill, you know, a bunch of people in a coffee shop, um, Hillary Clinton's response here would really juice you up. I'm guessing because, you know, the response, the response that our officials should have made should have been a measured one to say, we don't know the details of what happened. Um, you know, in response to direct questions about his pledging allegiance to ISIS, they could have said things like, well, those initial reports um, need to be explored, but as of right now, there's no connection to ISIS that law enforcement is aware of. Um, simply saying that you work on behalf of someone doesn't actually mean that you do. You know, it's almost like the way in which Clinton has poorly responded to Trump. She poorly responds to the, these kinds of incidents, right? She's giving these people more power um, by connecting them to this, you know, what is in the minds of, I think, a lot of disillusioned young people around the world, heroic resistance movement to Western imperialism, right? Um, don't do that. That's stupid. <laughs> the response should be, this guy was a nobody. Nobody knows who he is. He has no connection to anybody. He's trying to say he's connected to ISIS because he wants people to think he's tough, but he actually isn't. ISIS had no connection to this guy. And he's a fucking wife-beating misogynist whose life was falling apart, and he decided to take it out against, you know, on a bunch of people who were partying. That's the way that you delegitimate delegitimize violence like this it's not by you know casting it as a war between cultures and you know something worthy of u.s military response that's just completely insane and as you've said i act i believe makes americans much less safe don't tell a man that he can't come here because he got brown eyes and a wavy kind of hair and don't tell a woman that she can't go there because she prays a little different to a god up there. You say you're a Christian because God made you. You say you're a Muslim because God made you. You say you're a Hindu and the next man a Jew. Then we all kill each other because God told us to. No, hello, hello. Chad Griffin, uh, he spoke after the uh, massacre in Orlando. Chad Griffin of the uh, Human Rights Campaign speaking about uh, what happened in Orlando. 
In the days to come, there will be time to discuss what could have led to or even prevented this revolting tragedy. But let's get one thing clear. And this is what disgusts me the most about this tragedy. The maniac who did this was somehow conditioned to believe that LGBTQ people deserve to be massacred. Every time we see legislation that puts a target on the back of LGBT people, every time we hear a preacher that spews hate from the pulpit, every time a county clerk says that acknowledging our relationships violates her religious beliefs, it sends a signal that LGBT people should be treated differently and that we are less than. That is deeply ingrained in the hate and the bigotry that motivates such tragedy in this country. And together, that's what we must defeat. That was Chad Griffin of the Human Rights Campaign speaking after the uh, worst mass shooting in American history that took place on Saturday night, early Sunday morning in Orlando, Florida. Uh, Dan Savage, an LGBT columnist and and activist, uh, tweeted, Toxic masculinity, toxic homophobia, toxic religiosity, toxic gun culture. Toxic politics, indeed. Do you remember the forgotten America? Justice, equality, freedom to every race. Just need to get past all the lies and hypocrisy. Makeup and hair to the truth behind every face. Then look around to all the people you see. How many of them are happy and free? I know. It sounds like a dream, but it's the only thing that can get me to sleep at night. I know it's hard to believe, but it's easy to see that something here isn't right. I know the future looks dark, but it's there that the kids of today must carry the light. As we turn now to an aspect of the Orlando massacre that's received little coverage, the gunman's history of domestic violence. In a new article for Rolling Stone, journalist Soraya Chamali writes, quote, The Washington Post reported Monday that although family members said Omar Martin had expressed anger about homosexuality, the shooter had no record of previous hate crimes. But that depends on who you categorize, how you categorize domestic violence, she wrote. Mateen's ex-wife, Satora Yousafi, had come forward to describe how Mateen beat her. In the beginning, he was a normal being that cared about family, loved to joke, loved to have fun. But then a few months after we were married, I saw his instability and I saw that he was bipolar and he would get mad out of nowhere. That's when I started worrying about my safety, and then after a few months, he started abusing me physically very often and uh, not allowing me to speak to my family, keeping me hostage from them. And I tried to see the good in him even then, but my family was very tuned into what I was going through and decided to visit me and rescue me out of that situation. Mateen's ex-wife, Satora Yousafi, said her family had to, quote, pull her out of Mateen's arms when they came to rescue her. We turn now to this often overlooked connection between domestic violence and mass shootings. Think Progress reports between 2009 and 2012, 40 percent of mass shootings started with a shooter targeting his girlfriend, wife or ex-wife. 
Just this month in California, a UCLA doctoral student gunned down his professor, prompting a lockdown on campus. But first, Maynak Sarkar allegedly killed his estranged wife in Minnesota, climbing through a window to kill her in her home. And then he drove thousands of miles to California and killed his professor. Last year alone, nearly a third of mass shooting deaths were related in some way to domestic violence. And the majority of mass shootings in this country actually take place inside the home. Just this past weekend, as national attention was fixed to the massacre in Orlando, a man in New Mexico allegedly gunned down his wife and their four daughters. To talk more about this connection, we're joined by Soraya Chamali. Her recent article in Rolling Stone is called, In Orlando, As Usual, Domestic Violence Was Ignored, Red Flag. Welcome to Democracy Now! Uh, talk about what you have found. Morning, Amy. I think um, many of us have been writing about this connection for a while. Uh, you see repeatedly in these cases of mass violence, particularly where four or more people are killed, that the perpetrator had a history of attacking an intimate partner, a parent. Uh, it happened in the Boston Massacre. It happened in Sandy Hook. Uh, and so, for many of us, you kind of just wait for this information to, to come to the surface. And we wonder, why is it that this kind of behavior isn't seen as uh, a, an essential element to understanding lethality in public violence. And so one of the things that I have been writing about in this regard is how can we focus on behavior, intimate partner violence and similar behavior to prevent it before we get to the stage where it becomes a massacre in public. Um, the statistics that you gave are very, very consistent over time. And indeed, if you look at uh, murders that involve four or more people, the number goes up to 57 percent. Um, and so there's no real surprise in the information. The question is, how do we connect these dots more effectively to create better public policy? Mm. Policemen know. Um, how dangerous domestic violence situations are, right? Mm -hmm. Is a place they will most likely be injured if they go, if they're called to a home uh, to deal with domestic violence. Uh, yes, that's, I think that's very true. I think we have a, that's a, a very good point you make because it, it actually indicates a much larger problem. With domestic violence, we tend to think still uh, that it's private very often separated from the way we think about public violence or terrorism. And if we consider, however, the connection between institutionalized and state-sanctioned violence—and in this instance, I'm actually explicitly talking about extremely high levels of domestic violence in our policing communities—some estimates of self-reported um, domestic violence put that number at about 40 percent of policing communities. You begin to see the overlap between private behavior and public behavior and then the implications in terms of state action or inaction. For many people who are suffering uh, from domestic violence, going to the police is simply not an option, it, it, either for matters of their community and race or um, gender and sexual identity, but also simply because they feel that they don't have faith that when they go to the police, that as an institution it will be supportive. And so until we better address 
domestic violence in policing communities itself, it's very difficult to say that the police are a, 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 an active resource in these situations. They understand the violence, for sure, but the question is, how do they respond to it? No record of hate crimes. So talk more about domestic violence as hate. So we have a, an, a problem in general addressing gender-based hate in the country. So a hate crime has to be coded when it happens. And generally speaking, that isn't happening in terms of gender-based hate crimes. So for the past several years, after several um, incidents where gender and other intersectional factors seem to be relevant, uh, so for example, in um, the Elliot Roger case, or in the Ariel Castro case in Ohio, I have called the police department and said, was there a hate crime filed? Was there any kind of hate crime investigation uh, that that was started in either of these instances and others as well? And the response has always been no. And so we don't really assess accurately what the levels of gender-based violence in the country are, which is hugely problematic. And I don't mean to suggest that all domestic violence crimes are hate crimes. However, there is an element of um, hatred and misogyny that is pervasive in the culture that we simply don't see. It's so normalized. So every day, three women are killed by an intimate pa partner. Every week, we have 12 murder-suicides. Levels of street harassment, sexual harassment, rape, domestic violence are extremely high in the country. And so, until we capture the right data, it's extremely difficult for us to understand these patterns of behavior and then to connect them to these wider forms of violence that are manifested in, in different ways. Um, you write, Soraya, um, you write, uh, homophobia is nothing if not grounded in profound misogyny. Yes. Um, I think that sometimes that's difficult for people to appreciate, but if you reverse the trajectory of how we think about the targets of this violence, so— you know, here we had an LGBTQ community that was shattered by hatred. If we think not so much about the targets of the violence, whether it's women in their homes, um, people on the streets, people in clubs, and we look instead at the perpetrator, focus on the perpetrator and the attitudes that are informing perpetrator action, then we might have a better way of understanding that connection. If you consider the role that rigid gender stereotypes play, that ideas about masculinity, particularly toxic masculinity, play, that ideas about male entitlement play, then it's better—it's uh, clearer to see the ways in which a hatred of women or a hatred of things that are feminine gets tessellated into a sexual shame or homophobia so that it's just a different manifestation of the same types of entitlements. Soraya, talk about the coverage uh, that we've been hearing. We did hear um, the ex-wife of Omar Mateen, yes. uh, which immediately sparked this for you. Is that right? Uh, today, in our headline, uh, we go right to New Mexico to talk about what happened in North Roswell, a man yes. allegedly gunning down his wife and his four daughters. Yes. So, I, I think that for— um, 
people who are attuned to this, this information is everywhere. Headlines don't often talk about domestic and intimate partner violence clearly. So you may see a headline that says women and children shot in their home, but very rarely, by comparison, will you see the headline actively identify an intimate partner as an agent of that violence. And that's a huge problem, because our media tends to erase the agency and perpetration factor. But this is happening every day. It's happening all over the country. And um, until we have a way of clearly identifying the patterns in the crimes, we'll continue to ignore it as a matter of public policy. I mean, um, last year, after the Boston massacres, Pamela Schiffman and Salamisha Tillett wrote very clearly about this in the New York Times. Again, in the Huffington Post, Melissa Jelson identified the same patterns. And this idea that there is this break between public and private violence is deeply destructive. And it's also very patriarchal, because it's based on the idea that there is a special preserve that we aren't supposed to interfere with. But if you have a person living in your community that is violently abusive towards his family, that is a concern for the broader community. In this case, in Orlando, which is often the case, there seems to be no report made to the police, which means that it, it, we're inhibited as a society from taking further action. So he, for example, was completely able to go and legally get guns. We have a federal law that should have prohibited that if, for example, he'd had a restraining order. But more than 50 states actually do not have laws that support that. And so until we're able to provide community services that support people in their own homes, not for the purposes of criminalization necessarily, because we understand what the biases in our criminal system are, but for the, for the purposes of really understanding the deep complexities of intimate partner violence, we won't be able to address this violence. This public violence is a direct outgrowth of tolerance for violence in homes. Boys and girls who grow up in these homes are four times, particularly the boys, four times more likely to be um, aggressors as adults. And so when you look at a young man like this one who went into this club and was clearly exhibiting patterns, very destructive patterns before, you have to ask yourself, what could have been done to intervene earlier in the process? What was happening that inhibited the family from seeking more institutional help and support that would have been a red flag more broadly? I want to turn to, again, uh, the ex-wife of Omar Mateen speaking to reporters. Uh, Satori Yusufi said Mateen was violent towards her. Yeah, he was very short-tempered, and he would often get into fights and arguments with his parents, you know, but because I guess I was the only one in his life, most of the violence was towards me at that time. Soraya Chamali, your response. So her, the rest of her description um, really supports the argument that he felt she was his property. He wanted her to stay in the home. He clearly felt that he could physically abuse her. He brutally attacked her at one point. As she said, he held her hostage. Um, and as jarring as that may be, it's not uncommon. We don't tend to think about domestic violence and intimate partner violence in this country as honor crime. Um, but what we're really talking about in terms of the levels of violence we see are manifestations of deep shame, uh, either shame about uh, compromised masculinity or shame about sexuality that's unresolved. And 
So when, for example, a man like this acts with this violence, or like the man in New Mexico, he slaughters his family, or frankly, you know, every week, every month we see similar cases, we tend to disconnect it from either the deeper, broader social patterns that we see, or also from this idea that male shame can cause this level of intimate violence in our own communities. And, all, and I think it's very persistent. Um, you also quote right away um, Martine, Martine's co-worker, Daniel Gilroy, yes. who requested a transfer so we wouldn't have to work with Martine, describing him as scary in a concerning way. He had anger management issues. Something would set him off. But the things that would set him off were always women race or religion. Those were his button pushers. We just heard clips featuring Dan Savage reflecting on the history of attacks on the LGBTQ community and some of the changes that have happened in how we react to those attacks. Counterspin discussed the problematic media coverage immediately after the shooting. Talk Poverty Radio had a conversation about how the Orlando shooting should be labeled and why. Humorless queers took pride in the way the LGBTQ community largely rejected the attempts to use their pain as a leverage point to demonize Muslims. We heard a short video put out by Familia TQLM, followed by an interview on Counterspin with Jorge Gutierrez from the Trans Queer Liberation Movement to discuss the video and a Latinx perspective on the shooting. Talk Poverty Radio highlighted many of the terrible things regularly said about the LGBTQ community and how that leads inevitably to a attacks like this. Humorless Queers pointed out how linking attacks like these to Islam is actually playing directly into the hands of terrorist groups who want nothing more than to set up a clash of civilizations. The broadcast shared a quote from the Human Rights Campaign, and finally, Democracy Now! addressed how domestic violence and toxic masculinity so often play a role in the lives of men who go on to commit larger acts of violence. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing, and now we'll hear from you. Hey, this is Al from Seattle. I just needed to leave a very, very quick comment in regards to uh, Orlando and a lot of the comments, but specifically the father's comments. We have to respect the fact that everybody does not believe the same thing. And if somebody does not believe in homosexuality or does not believe in God or does not believe in eating ice cream, we we should learn to respect each other for the fact that they get to make that decision for themselves. That guy gave not only the perfect reason why we shouldn't be violent in a religious uh, a way, but he also gave the perfect reason why we shouldn't be violent in a, 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 a feeling or uh, opinion in regards to sexuality. Say. Leave it to God, and maybe we'll all be shocked in the end and everything's okay. Or maybe we'll be shocked in the end and it turns out that we were all supposed to be eating toast this whole time. But what a beautiful way of saying it. And that message is also in other religions. And I feel like the media is not making recognition of what a, a wonderful statement that he made, despite the horrific reason why he had to make it. 
I love your show. I, I hope that uh, you win some awards, and I'm going to keep on listening. You have a good one. Hi, Jay. This is Allison from Boulder, Colorado. I'm not sure if you or any of your listeners have read James W. Lowen's Lies My Teacher Told Me. If you haven't, it's really very interesting and um, a very useful resource on why so many Americans have such a poor understanding of our history. However, in response to your most recent episode, which was, I loved it, it was great, I wanted to mention the chapter on social class in this book and how high school history textbooks and classes handle, well, really ignore the issue. The point I wanted to cover that seems to be particularly affecting white working class men is the fact that high school history classes and textbooks are willing to talk about sexism and its role in in creating poverty, which is absolutely true and racism and its role in creating poverty, which is also true. Those are both factors that that contribute. But they never actually talk about poverty itself and its role in perpetuating more poverty. So white working class men who are poor may very well be experiencing classism, but since it's never really talked about in the place where it should be, they are more likely to blame themselves. I know quite a few who, routine, who routinely label themselves as stupid or losers. I know it's not true. Or other groups. All those Mexicans or women or black people um, who are out to steal our jobs when they should really be blaming the system itself. I'm not trying to sound apologist or say that poor white men have it worse than anyone else, but I do feel that the lack of discussion of classism as a factor in discrimination uh, really does all of us a disservice. To the point where many people are so alienated from by their history class in high school that they never even bothered to take a a college history course, which would possibly cover this issue. So keep up the great work and um, thanks for the show. Hi, my name is Epchez. I'm a theater artist in Philadelphia. I am a Latinx ungendered person and I felt very hit by the events in Orlando, I heard about it around 11 when I was on the job doing sales on the street. And I was suddenly aware of my trans body in a way that I hadn't really ever been before as someone who is white and um, in a very liberal area. So it really hit me. And as I you know, left my place of work immediately and walked down the street uh, trying to find somewhere like safe to go but pretty immediately my feeling of not being safe transformed into a uh, kind of feeling of power as I was walking through pretty big crowds with tears streaming down my face in a trans body in the wake in the trans Latinx body in the wake of the tragedy that just happened. 
and uh, that power was really inspiring. So I've been feeling really called to be as visible as possible since then. I wanted to share that. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Today, I really just want to ask you guys to call in and leave your messages with your thoughts and experiences of toxic masculinity. It's a fascinating concept. I've heard the term before, but it really made a comeback in the wake of the Orlando massacre. And it was talked about a little bit in today's show, but I'll sort of round out the definition the way I understand it. First of all, to be clear, has nothing to do with demonizing all men or saying that men are inherently bad or even have the tendency to be more bad just because they're men. And even though there is a discussion that could be had about the effects of you know things like testosterone on a, a person's level of aggressiveness, that's not even what we're talking about. My understanding of toxic masculinity, the way it is broadly uh, used, we're talking about the way men and boys are socialized. It's not physiological. It's how society tells men and boys they need to be. And very often, societal structures uh, and guidelines of how men and boys are supposed to act is not actually in line with how most individual humans would want to act on their own. So there's a this inherent conflict between how a person wants to be and how they feel like they need to be. And then that sort of builds these people with these inherent contradictions. And uh, and then just beyond that, uh, the way our society sort of tells men to be is, is sort of unhealthy in a lot of ways. It's just emotionally unhealthy, telling, you know, boys don't cry and you know, men should just be sort of stoic, emotionless pillars of strength and all of this sort of masculine bullshit that we have to deal with, it leads to terrible outcomes. I think there's a lot of evidence to say that the Orlando Massacre is one of those terrible outcomes. But if you want another one, there, there's an unbelievably great example that came out on a different show with just perfect timing. There's a show that NPR produces called Invisibilia, and it's an excellent show. They've just started their second season, and very, very well produced and, and uh, you know researched show. It's it's a bit like Radiolab. It has some you know producer who used to be on Radiolab. You've probably heard of it. And the first episode they put out in their second season, it just came out a few days ago, doesn't talk by name about toxic masculinity, but that is what the whole show is about. So, you know, the first story is about 40 minutes long. It has nothing to do with feminism, nothing to do with women or gender equality at all. It has to do with a bunch of dudes working on an oil rig in the middle of the ocean and how what is actually toxic masculinity, even though they don't refer to it by that name, how that literally causes more men to die than if they could do away with those societal structures of how men 
uh, manage to relate to each other. And the story is about how at least one company or one rig worked through those problems and saw the death rates and, and safety rates improve dramatically and even the efficiency of the oil rig improved because of the way these men began to be able to converse with each other in a way that was productive for everyone. So, so that's an example. Definitely go check that out. Uh, Invisibilia episode, it just came out a few days ago. I, I don't have the title of that episode in front of me at the moment, but you should be able to figure it out. So if you have any thoughts from your own life, experiences you've had, the, the way you grew up and sort of the expectations that were put on you that maybe you didn't like or appreciate or you had to fight through, uh, or if you've had negative experiences in your life that can be traced back to this concept, I, I would love to hear any of those. Anything you have to say on the topic, I would love to hear it. And then finally, just to wrap up, I want to point out that although we didn't have a full-blown activism segment for today, uh, I want to point you to the Victims Fund that you, if you would like to support the victims of the Orlando Massacre, they have a GoFundMe page set up. I'll put it in the show notes uh, for you there, but if you want to just type it in, go to GoFundMe.com slash Pulse Victims Fund. So again, keep those comments coming in. I'd love to hear any thoughts you have about what I just talked about or what was in today's show or something that wasn't in today's show but maybe should have been. Obviously, we have a whole slew of intersecting issues going on with the Orlando story. I couldn't possibly fit them all into one episode, but they will be addressed in coming episodes. Uh, so if you want to call in, the number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all the great content we put out there. And for all the details on the show itself, including links to the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our sad stories And wonder what we're missing Wonder what we're doing Can't see past